Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. Today, we're going to talk about the leadership pin code, unlocking the key to willing and winning relationships. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in identifying disruptive trends and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and into the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. Today, our guest is Dr. Nasher Dal Sonheim. Nasher brings a new toolkit to leadership development that's backed by decades of integrated experience in the areas of business and psychology. As a former forensic psychologist with clinical research in neuropsychology of criminal minds, she developed a, a deep interest in effective learning strategies for lasting success. Now as an expert negotiator who studied at the Program of Negotiations at Harvard Law School, Dr. Solheim has combined her experience as an executive leader in international private companies and government ministries to present the Leadership PIN Code, the definitive guide to helping business leaders secure influence and impactful results. So today, Nasheter is going to join us to share with you how to use the power of psychology to get what you want from every interaction while also maintaining positive win-win team relationships. Our hope today is that you'll walk away with new tips to inspire trust, easily navigate conflict, and create value every day. And that will help all of us gain traction and develop high-performing, fully engaged teams. And what I'd add to that is Nasheter is going to provide, make some of the tools of psychology incredibly practical for business leaders so that we can truly influence our team. So, Nashadar, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything you want to tell our listeners before we jump into the questions? No, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Me too. Uh, What are some of the biggest reasons why leaders don't get the traction they want with their teams? You know, that's a question that I get asked an awful lot. And I think it really boils down to one thing for me, which is they often start with their own agenda, like, you know, the task that they have on their desk, what's really bothering them at this moment in time, or the request they have of the person they're speaking to. So they're really in their own heads, as I call it. And what that means is when they start the conversation with a team member or with the whole team, they are taking over the conversation perhaps really pushing their own needs ahead of really thinking about, well, what's in it for my team? What's in it for this other person? How will I, in a way, motivate them and engage them to want to help me with whatever it is that I have have to do? So I think one of the biggest reasons why leaders don't get the traction is they're not really thinking about creating the win-win in the conversation they're having, really engaging other people's interest in, in supporting them and helping them. I think sometimes they become what I call entitled So they might be thinking, well, I am the leader. People should just do as I say, right? And they probably will. But if we want fully engaged, motivated teams who will go the extra mile, then paying attention to what they're interested in, they're motivated by, in what it is that you're asking of them, can really make the difference between people just getting the job done and people really giving that extra 150%. So many of our listeners will assume they're engaging leaders or engaged leaders not entitled, but what are the the actual behavioral cues they should be looking for to test that assumption? It's funny, isn't it, when we start talking about 
the idea of being entitled versus engaged. And for me, it's, it's a continuum. I don't think we're kind of either one or the other, but I think we move between those, those ideas of what I mean by entitled is people who perhaps have heard leaders saying, you know, I've been there and done this many times before. You know, I've, I've been on the right leadership program. I'm a, I'm a really good leader. Or, you know, I, I don't need to learn anything new. I, I'm an expert in this. Versus perhaps at the other end of the spectrum, what I call engaged leaders who are really open to learning. They're curious. They may have done leadership for a long time, but they haven't done this role, perhaps, or they haven't done this task. Or maybe they're even dealing with people who are new to them. So they're yet to find out whether they can lead in this context. And how do you know which one you are? I think really, how open are you to learning, to accepting feedback and acting on that? How humble are you to not always knowing everything and getting things right? So I really look at the entitled engaged leader as a spectrum. And I think we probably move along that spectrum at different times of our lives with different people in different contexts. But really at the ends of that spectrum, you've got somebody who feels they know it all, doesn't feel they need, they need to learn anything new and really feel entitled that people should follow them because they have the, the title or the, or the mandate. Whereas at the engaged end of the spectrum, I think we're really looking at people who are more curious, more open, and more humble to the opportunity that lies before them to learn something new. As you describe that, a couple of things come to mind. One is in the aftermath of, or depending on how things unfold over the next few months, either aftermath or re-engaged in the pandemic, and also dealing with and navigating in well, around the world, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. And in the U.S., we've just had a Supreme Court ruling about LGBTQ rights. Right. Uh, we, we had the Me Too movement within the last year. If people think they really have been there and done that, it's hard to fathom how they would be dealing with the nuances that uh, many of us are experiencing at this point. And so I'm, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's interesting to hear leaders, whether they're political leaders or leaders of business right now, especially those who are saying, you know, I've been through changes before. This is nothing new. I've been through the financial crisis. You know, we had the SARS virus before. You know, this is okay. This is just a different change. But, you know, every change that impacts us, uh, whether it's right in front of us with our team or in our work environment or at the global level as we're experiencing right now with COVID brings its own fresh and new challenges and nobody's been through those before until they're right there in the moment dealing with them so I am always curious when somebody comes to me and says no this is great I've got it I know what I'm doing Um, I don't need any support or advice or feedback or you know I'm, I'm kind of not open to that because I feel like I have my way of doing things and it's good and it works and I'm always really challenging them to think about, well, it worked in that setting in those in, at that time in that situation with what you knew then. But aren't you a little bit curious as to whether this might be a bit different and what <laughs> might test of your skills or what insights it might bring? And are you a little bit curious you might just learn something? And, you know, I, thankfully, I will say this, Maureen, there are very few leaders I, I meet at the very extreme end of this, the entitled spectrum who will say, you know, they really can handle everything. They are few and far between. But you certainly will see some leaders who maybe through you know, and I'm, I'm a psychologist, so I'm, I'm always curious about why people say these things. But maybe through, you know, not wanting to be seen to be vulnerable or feeling it might show them to be incompetent, aren't really open to saying, maybe I just don't know. And I've got to figure this one out. And how can my team help me to figure this one out? You know, I think that's really an important question is, at least for me, trying to work with executives who seem to, th- who externally demonstrate that they know what they're doing. I often wonder internally if they feel confident or if they just are living with the the perception that they need to maintain that persona because they're in charge. I think there are probably the majority of 
I'd say humans as well, and leaders are humans mm-hmm. after all, where we try and compensate for our insecurities. You know, we, we've heard the phrase, you know, fake it till you make it. And, you know, the imposter syndrome, the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing things, but we may not feel 100% confident that we really know what we're doing. And we just hope nobody notices. Um, I think that's quite natural. I think that's quite normal. I think in leadership, what I'm really keen to have leaders reflect on it is to what extent that's helpful to the you know which of those perspectives you take you know am I going to just fake it till I make it and and not let anybody know that I'm struggling I need help or I could do with some advice or a sounding board or am I really just going to put it out there and say you know I may have had a lot of experience but this one I'd really like to bounce some ideas off you or ask you to help me out here and the idea that perhaps by engaging your team or, or others into, into a conversation with you, you're more likely to come up with something valuable, something that has common ownership to the team, and perhaps is going to teach you something new and refreshing that you wouldn't have otherwise figured out. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that most of the leaders I come into contact with are towards the more engaged end of spectrum. They're at least open. And what they're able to do is identify that part of themselves that is let's say the ego isn't so strong that they're not they're able to admit that they don't know everything where I find people really adopt this persona of you know I know it all or I'm you know I I, I don't need to learn anything new is perhaps two two things one is they may well be defended against you know, for lots of reasons in their upbringing or previous experiences, the repercussions of sayings that they don't know. You know, maybe they've had negative feedback in the back or they've been criticized or, you know, it's made them feel that they they um, aren't able to cope and they don't want to show people what that looks like. But it can also be, and now I'm talking at a very extreme end of the entitled spectrum, Maureen, when I talk about, you know, kind of bordering on psycho- psychopathic or narcissistic type personality traits, where really you truly believe that you do know it all and that you really don't have anything to learn. Now, psychoanalysts will tell you that there is still a very fragile ego, even in those cases, that's being defended by that persona. Um, That's another conversation, I think. But uh, I would say, generally speaking, when we try to put on a bravado or a brave face or, or put on this, you know, fake it till you make it, where trying to make sure that we don't fall apart, that we show we can cope, that we're able to be resourceful. But I'm also encouraging people to just name that part of themselves that's not so sure so that they can ask for the right help. You know, I was talking to a client this morning and her uh, not good at asking for help uh, for all kinds of reasons because of what you mentioned earlier, the perception that if I ask for help, I'm somehow admitting that I haven't earned this job and I don't deserve to be here. And it really does seem important that we help the team negotiate or come to agreements with each other that, in fact, we expect one another to ask for reasonable help because it raises the performance of the whole team rather than each of us struggling quietly. I agree. And I think it's it's about those shared agreements that you create together as a team. You know, often when I'm working with new teams, a leader coming in with a new team or a new leader coming in themselves and making sure they have those explicit conversations before they really start working on, on tasks or, or, or projects together. You know, what are our shared agreements about how we expect to work together? What's okay in this team? What's the culture of this team going to be, if you like? You know, what's acceptable? Is it okay to to kind of screw up and and you know try again and learn from our mistakes? Or do we are we really expecting people to get it right the first time all the time? You know, are we open to giving each other constructive feedback and you know using that as a learning opportunity? Dare, are we daring to be vulnerable and share perhaps beyond the task itself and the job itself and talk about what's going on in our lives wider than our jobs so that we really get to know each other and understand each other at another level? So these shared agreements, I think, are a really important part of the leaders setting themselves into this context of being a member of a team. After all, you're not a leader if nobody's following you. So, you know, you are part of this team. And you need to be open to having those conversations about what do you expect from me and, and you know, what am I offering of myself when it comes to being a role model for what I expect of you? If I expect you to be able to be open and vulnerable and share and, and mess up but learn, then 
I've got to role model that, right? So I need to be able to say I'm going to do the same too. And not only say it, but do it. It's easy to say I'm going to make mistakes, but it's for those of us who were taught that as the leader, I'm supposed to be always on, I'm I'm now performing a role rather than being myself. And that's a hard shift. It is a hard shift. And I think this is cultural. And when I say cultural, I, I mean that in many ways, it can be organizational culture. You know, that some cultures and organizations can be very hierarchical and very, what shall I say, authoritative so and competitive internally so that once you achieve a leadership role, you know, you've got to kind of really prove yourself to be worthy of it. And maybe one of the things that you think you have to do is, is always know all the answers. Um, mm-hmm. And it can also be cultural in what, what kind of national culture. You know, some cultures are, are much more relaxed and open about how they d- conduct business and the role of the leader with the, within business. And in other cultures, it can be much more about getting the right title and the right mandate, you know, and the, and the right kind of salary really says something about the power and knowledge you have. So we, we reward knowledge and power by giving you a title. Um, so, you know, I, I'm in Scandinavia where... The, the cultural, the, the, the culture of, of business is very flat. It's a very flat hierarchy or absence of a hierarchy, really. It's much more collaborative. So the title and mandate have really very little to say about what you're able to do and, and what you know. And you really have to show up and show yourself up as a leader in how you behave, how you act, how you engage a team, how you collaborate. And um, in fact, you know, having fancy titles or grand titles really holds no store whatsoever. So it's, it's an interesting, I think, when you look at culture in different ways, what gets reinforced and, and therefore what leaders feel they have to do to, to belong or to earn their position. Beautiful. Thank you. So we are going to go on break now. You are with uh, Maureen Metcalf and Dr. Nasheter Dow Solheim. And we are talking about the leader pin code and specifically starting with the, the construct of entitled versus engaged leaders and how do we identify within ourselves those behaviors that reflect along the continuum? When am I being titled? When am I being engaged? And I invite our listeners as we go on break to think about what culture your organization promotes and rewards. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. We are talking to Dr. Nasheter Dow-Solheim. We're talking about her latest book, The Leadership Pin Code, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships. And so let's jump into walking through what is the pin code, and which is, you've said, persuade, influence, and negotiate, and the, the ABC frameworks from your new book. Thank you, Maureen. So let me get straight into it because it sounds perhaps more complex than it really is. And the whole purpose of my book was to simplify what I feel are the most important key skills for leaders in building relationships with the people they work with. And I called it PIN, uh, Persuasion, Influence and Negotiation Skills, because what I'd realized in working with, as a leader myself, I'm working as a leadership coach for many years, was despite the number of programs and books that were available and a lot of the leaders I was working with had been on and had read, they would struggle to, when they got back to the office to really be able to translate all that knowledge, all that information, and simply put it into practice the next day in a conversation they were having with an employee, whether it was in a performance review or they were standing on stage and, and you know, presenting the, the business priorities for the coming year. But they were really losing that translation. And I would often hear employees actually coming back to to me as a developer and saying, really, they went on an eight-month leadership program and, and he still really can't look me in the eye and, and make me feel like I'm, I, I'm really valued. And I was thinking, you know what, maybe we're missing something here in, in the, the grandness of everything that we're teaching these leaders. And really, what is it that they're, they're struggling with? And I identified it after really giving it a lot of thought and, and discussing it with colleagues and looking at, at cases where I'd been working with leaders closely and identified it to be these skills of how we influence others, how we persuade people to our point of view, and how we negotiate, whether that's negotiating resources, you know, extra support, whether it's you know, trying to get somebody on board for a new task. But it's these persuasive skills that really are key to having the influence we want to have. So that's where the pin came from. It was really me crystallizing what is the gap between what leaders know and how they're having the, their impact. And, you know, there's a gap there. What they intend and the impact they have doesn't always match up. So, you know, what is it that they need to make sure that does match? It is translating my intention in such a way that it has the impact I want it to have. And those are the pin skills. Now, I've worked as a psychologist for many years as, as a forensic psychologist with, with psychopaths, but also as a neuropsychologist. So really studying the brain and how it works and how it learns. And in that, I learned something really interesting called the rule of three. And the rule of three says that as humans in general, we tend to remember information in chunks of three. And if you think about it, telephone numbers or, you know, uh, car registration plates, certainly here in Europe, or, you know, if you kind of see zip codes, they'll tend to be in, in chunks of three and four. And that's because there's a real neuroscience to the memory of humans, which is that we tend to remember information when it's chunked into threes or fours. And the rule of three comes from the idea that three is the most common um, number of items that we can recall easily without forgetting them. And certainly brain injury research confirms that. So when I was looking at these skills, these persuasive influence negotiating skills that I really wanted leaders to learn, I didn't want to replicate the same issues I'd seen in leadership programs, which was, you know, eight, nine, 10 months of, you know, lots of information and, and case studies and models and theories and have them come back with the same issue that they just don't remember it. So going back to my neuropsychology days, I remembered this rule of three and I was thinking, okay, so how can I crystallize those skills into a method that people will remember and they can use every day without having to put in a lot of effort to remember what those skills are or how to implement them. And when I looked at what those I did a lot of observation of leaders in different settings, standing on stage, giving speeches, coaching their teams, running team meetings, giving performance feedback. And I realized there were, there were actually three things that if they just did 1% better would make a huge difference to the influence they had. And that was the ABC. And I gave it ABC because ABC is easy to remember, but actually it stands for advanced preparation, A, or your approach, if you want to call it that. So what you do before you have a conversation with somebody or go into a meeting or stand on the stage, how do you prepare? What do you need to know about that other person? 
Uh, how well do you know the message that you're trying to communicate? How well do you know your stakeholders that you're trying to influence? And then the B is your body language and the behavior of the room. And what I mean by that is, so you've prepared your message, you're about to go in and have the conversation, but have you thought about what your body is doing? Do you have any mannerisms, for example, that are maybe distracting, maybe even irritating? Or, you know, are you conscious that your message is aligned with the expression on your face? So if you're giving, you know, great news, you know, are you smiling? Do you look like you're positive about that news? And the same, of course, for bad news. We want to make sure that we we are sympathetic to the message that we're giving and it's showing up in our body language. And the room behavior, what I mean by that is, and this is really part of the psychology I learned as a forensic psychology psychologist uh, working with violent offenders was where you put your chair in the room, how you set up the physical room can have a huge impact on how you communicate uh, your, your trust, your collaboration, your intention. And I give a lot of tips of that in the book. I, I can come back to that shortly. But really, where you sit and how you sit in the room can have a huge impact on the influence you have. And then the C is for conversation. And that's really the questions you're going to ask or the responses you're going to give. So the A, B, C, advanced preparation, B for body language and room behavior, and C for conversation. They were the three elements of these skills that I thought, if leaders just did those three things consciously and made small changes in each of those three areas, they would really have much more impact than they perhaps are having today. So that's where the method comes from, the ABC. So let's go through each of them a couple of minutes just to give an example. Um, So advanced prep, if I were to do one thing, what would you recommend for me to do? And I realize that I'll change based on the who I am and what I'm doing. Sure. But I think what everybody could do in the advanced preparation is, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation to get out of your own head. Well, in the advanced preparation, I really want you to get into the head of the other person that you're going to have the conversation with. And what I mean by that is figure out what they're interested in. Do your homework. So how well do you really know them? Do you know what motivates them? What drives them? In this task that you're going to ask them to support you on, for example, do you know what might motivate them? Let me give you an example. Perhaps you're talking to an employee who's already overloaded with a lot of work and you as a leader are going to come in and ask them to do yet something else, you know, on top of everything else. But you also know them well enough that they really feel that their skills are not visible and valued and rewarded by perhaps other people in the organization. And they would really like to be recognized for that. So the task that you have might have elements of that in it. So you could really appeal to that when you discuss it with them. So let's say this person's called Jane and you, you're having a conversation with Jane who's already overloaded and you might start the conversation with, you know, Jane, you know, you're doing a great job. I see that you're really busy. And at the same time, I have this, this task, which I think will be a great opportunity for you to showcase, you know, your competencies. And I know that's been something that, you know, you really feel you haven't been recognized for. And whilst this is on top of everything else, it's a great opportunity for you to do that. Now, how can I help you juggle your workload so that this is something that you get to do and you also will get to benefit from? So you see you're really hooking your message on what you know the other person is interested in. So one tip is to really know the other person and then make sure you communicate your message in connection with their interests. Beautiful. Thank you. So next, let's go to body language. The BFABC? Yeah, body language. One great tip I'd like to give is think about how, when you're seated, think about what you're doing with your arms and think about the posture that you have in your chair. It can really, without you even realizing it, give signals about whether you're really interested in listening, whether you're, you know, defensive. And even if you don't feel defensive, your natural tendency to fold your arms and cross your legs tightly may to the other person come across as somebody who is closed uh, or, or being defensive. So just being a little more conscious about opening your arms, relaxing them, you know, not sitting with your phone in your hand and tapping on the screen while you're listening to somebody or you know, sitting behind a PC. So being really conscious that your body language is part or the best part really of communicating. I'm here, I'm listening to you. And I'm you know, open to, to whatever it is that you're sharing with me. So relaxed legs, open arms, and a very direct um, 
body language that communicates, I'm here, I'm present, and I'm listening. Beautiful. Thank you. And then let's go to the third or conversation. So this is perhaps one of the trickiest parts of the ABC for people because it's about how to steer a conversation in a way to have great influence. And then it's very specific, I guess, to the context you're in. But what I will say is there are questioning techniques that I go through some of those in the book, there's too many to obviously describe in, in a book, but certainly techniques that help you ask open questions in such a way that it helps to open up a conversation or help somebody share more than they were, you know, originally um, trying to do. Maybe you were asking very close questions and the quest- conversation wasn't getting very far. So I share questions very Concretely, I share exact questions that you might want to use in different settings, whether it's handling a conflict, giving somebody performance feedback where it hasn't gone so well, or where you're trying to build a trusting relationship. Questions that really help people feel relaxed and open and willing to listen. And I certainly also make some um, uh, comments about questions that don't work so well. And there's one question I always you know, really put out there, which we should avoid at all costs when there's a problem, and, and that's asking somebody why. Because mm-hmm. if you ask of a person, why did you do that? Why, why didn't you get it right? Or why did it go wrong? It can often create a very defensive and, and uh, blaming feeling in the mm-hmm. other person, right? Especially depending on the tone of your voice. Well, it comes with it, you know. It's really interesting because if you try to say why to somebody without the tone of voice, it's, it, it just naturally becomes a, a kind of accusatory tone without even that being your intention. So I go through in the C questions that help people to relax and open up and share uh, open questions. You know, how did that happen? How did you get to this understanding? What led up to that decision? Far more informative and give you far more information than a simple why question, which may just close the other person down. And then I also talk about the use of silence and responses so that if you need to steer a conversation in a particular way, you can use these questioning techniques in conversation to steer the conversation in a win-win way. You know, I'm often asked, are you teaching us to be a manipulative nasheter? <laughs> I'm like, no. Manipulation in my, my book is where there's a win-lose. You're trying to get something at somebody else's cost. What I'm really about in these techniques is Make sure that you're addressing their win too. And if there's a win-win, it can only be positive. You know, that's a big question I've gotten often in, with people I coach when we talk about how to be more effective and get, get the best results, not just from the people who work for you, but also from peers and stakeholders, and including the people to whom I report. Is, am I manipulating? And I have a similar, if, if what I'm doing is advancing the mission of the organization, then it's not manipulating. Right. And I, I guess I, I say the same thing. And I, at the individual level, I will say if the other person's needs are met, you know, I'm interested in mm-hmm. them, I'm interested in meeting them, and they're happy with that, then, you know, there's no loss, nobody's losing anything, or it's not costing anybody anything in, in terms of something they didn't want mm-hmm. to lose, or they didn't want to pay. So we've got two minutes left in this segment, Can, and I realize we could talk for a whole hour on this, but given your background in psychology and your unique perspective on leadership, can you share one or two surprising insights to give our listeners about how leaders can use the power of psychology at work? Because I'm assuming some people resist that kind of concept. So a very simple technique that tends to be the most popular one people will come straight back to me on that they've implemented immediately after, you know, working with me or reading the book is the room behavior where you put your chairs. So, you know, typically in an interview, you might sit opposite each other at a table, you know, at 180 degrees. And that's a very confrontational kind of direct me versus you kind of seating setup. Ironically, in an interview, you're thinking that's where I'm going to bring out the best in people, but I, we tend to find ourselves sitting in a, in a very formal um, way so that perhaps it isn't achieving our, our goal. So sitting at a 90-degree angle or at the corner of a table or actually not having a table there at all and just sitting in the V of a 90-degree so that you're side by side but not directly, but you know on an angle, gives much better 
relaxed eye contact and creates this common space between the two of you, which says, you know, we're in this task together. It's not about me versus you. It's about us and the task. So that's a super simple psychology technique that's used in therapeutic relationships. When I was a therapist, I would often create that seating plan with my clients so that we felt comfortable and relaxed and the eye contact was natural and not too direct. So that's one example. Beautiful. Thank you. So we're going to go on break. And I would encourage our listeners to think about the the ABCs that Nashador mentioned and pick one that you may find an opportunity to become more effective at. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. You are with... Dr. Nashader Dow-Solheim and Maureen Metcalf, and we are talking about the leadership pin code, unlocking the key to willing and winning relationships. So we're going to move into talking about dysfunctional beliefs of leaders. So uh, Nashader, uh, you begin your book with eight common dysfunctional beliefs of leaders. What are some of those beliefs uh, that we should be checking in on ourselves and see how we begin to shift them? These, Maureen, are really beliefs I I think are incredibly common um, amongst all leaders, whether they're first new to the role or whether they're very, very experienced. And in fact, I think they're even more common in the more experienced. Let me give you a couple of those examples. So often we see in organizations that leaders perhaps have been promoted because they're an expert in their own field, you know, in their own kind of discipline. And as a result of performing very well, they're then made the leader of that team or leader within that that business unit. And the assumption is that perhaps by being a subject matter expert, you're also going to be a great leader. But leadership is a discipline in its own right. I think you and I would agree that. And there really seems to be no link between you being an expert in finance, for example, or a technical expert, and that making you a great leader. So I often hear a common dysfunctional belief, as I call it, that, you know, well, I'm, I'm an expert in finance, so of course I can lead a financial team, or I'm a, you know, I'm a great engineer, so of course it's best that I lead the engineering team. But actually what we're missing there is that leadership really requires an understanding of people and how you motivate people and emotional intelligence as it's as it's called you know how how we show up in ourselves and how we make sure that we are 
really motivating and engaging the people around us to do the work that needs to be done. So one of those dysfunctional beliefs is I'm an expert, therefore I'm a, I'm a great leader. And that's really something I, I, I challenge with those domain experts who believe that it's enough to be, you know, kind of super smart and have lots of degrees and lots of te technical qualifications. Another right, thank one, you. Yeah, go ahead. Just another one, just to, as a, another example is I've been on a lot of leadership programs and therefore that makes me a great leader. And I've certainly come across that really often with leaders who've been to prestigious schools or on very lengthy programs. And when they come back, they're, they're assuming that all of that knowledge, all of that experience is showing up in how they lead. And, you know, the, the real proof of the pudding is how your team feels and how the people you're leading mm -hmm. feel, not how you feel about your leadership. So I will really have them check in and say, you know, well, it's great that you believe you're a great leader because you've done the program, but what are your people saying? You know, how do they view the way that they feel engaged by you or valued by you or motivated by you or inspired by you? And is it translating into your actual behavior? You made that point earlier, Maureen. You know, how is it really showing up in your actual behavior? Because it's not a, it's not a certificate that's going to, you know, crack the code here. It's going to be what you mm. do every day. You know, we talk about uh, the idea that I can recite leadership quotes versus I, I epitomize those behaviors in my mindset and my actions. And I think there's a chasm between I can talk about it and I can do it. And many leadership programs teach you more to talk about the theory rather than to mm -hmm. embody it. I, th I think that's so true. And I think, you're, you know, I talk about leading in the moment. And what I mean by that is you're only a leader in every moment that you're actually leading. It's not a status <laughs> or being, you know, you might not have been a leader five minutes ago, but now you're leading, you are. So if we take that idea that you can only be leading in any moment, then really qualifications and certifications are meaningless. It's really about what you're doing in every moment. Are you leading now? You know, are you engaging your team in this moment? Are you having those conversations that are really impactful? I think that's a really important point. On a slightly different level, there are people who don't have any official titles and don't aspire to that, but they often do take the role of leader at various times and do it very well. Exactly. And when you look at those people, which I was you know, really interested in, when I was looking at the engaged end of the spectrum, you know, who, who are the engaged leaders? Oftentimes they are people who don't realize that they are just good with people. They tend to be very emotionally savvy. You know, they read people well, they pay attention, they, they're empathic, they're open, they're humble to learning. And it's you know, either that they were picked as leaders because of those characteristics, or it just is happens to be the case that those characteristics in their leadership make them a better leader. But I agree with you. There are plenty of people who don't carry the title, the formal title, who lead from where they are. They can be project leaders. They can be teammates who just take a leadership role or moment with peers when it's needed to get something done or to move something forward. But they're showing up with those emotional intelligence skills when they're doing so. Beautiful. So that was two. Um, let's go on to the next one. The, oh, so the the um, next dysfunctional belief I wanted to share was I've had tons of years of experience, so I don't need to learn anything new in this leadership. You know, I've been a leader for years and years and years. And this is probably one of my favorites because I work with the executive um, group, really, a lot of C-suite leaders. And it's something that's very common there to say, you know, I've, I've been through this for many, many years. You know, I, I'm not an executive for nothing. I've had lots of leadership positions. So, you know, I, I kind of know leadership. I know what I'm doing here. And why I call that a dysfunctional belief is because one of the things that comes with that is perhaps that you're carrying with you out of date or out of step or perhaps even old-fashioned, to use that word, ideas of what leadership is from, from the days when you maybe did do those programs or you were first a leader. Or perhaps you're carrying forward techniques and styles of leadership that worked in those previous settings but aren't going to work in this setting. And what you're not doing by holding on to that belief that, you know, I've done this for so long, I know what I'm doing, is being open to the idea that the generation coming up 
into your team, into your organization that may be a different generation to you, perhaps, coming with different expectations on how they expect to be um, communicated with or how they expect to collaborate with each other and with you. It can be something as simple, Maureen, as, you know, being more informal in their communication and using social media to chat to their leader as opposed to always doing it through Teams or by mail. So, you know, really being open to, I may have been a leader for years, but what am I facing now that is different to what I've known before? And also, what are my years of experience should I not be bringing with me, by the way? You know, am I paying attention to some of the stuff that I should be leaving in the history and, and hasn't, wasn't so effective or, or wasn't so um, influential or impactful? Yeah, that's, that's why we started calling our body of work the Innovative Leadership Series is that what got me here makes me successful and how do I innovate or update what I'm doing? And we use the analogy of, of my mobile device. I don't use a flip phone. I don't have a BlackBerry anymore. Those right. were really effective when they were new and I was using them. And some people may still use Blackberries. That's branding rather than right. functionality. But if I am not updating my leadership skills like I update my mobile device, I am likely to depreciate. Because if, I, if I'm still leading using the same mindset as I did when I used a flip phone, I am likely out of date and likely less effective than I was back then. Exactly. And we, we've seen that, leadership literature and research and styles of leadership you know we you and I are both interested in that field so we follow the trends and we're seeing changes in those trends of what is effective leadership what do we expect from our leaders that's changing as much as the times are changing you know now we hear a lot of talk about you know authenticity being important vulnerability being important you know trust being even more important the ability to virtually collaborate and network being important so there are a lot of changes or let's say changes in emphasis if not you know it's maybe not new ideas but a different emphasis being placed on the importance of those so for me the years of experience dysfunctional belief is really you know stay open to learning stay open to adjusting what you know letting go of some of the things you thought used to work because maybe something else now works better and you may need to as you say upgrade your your toolkit Beautiful. So then uh, what is the next of the eight? And I like the idea that you're giving us uh, practical things I can do. So if I'm asking, is my approach still working? And is it still going to work with the next generation? If not, being receptive to changing my behavior and my self-image. I think... The last one I'd share with you out of the eight, you know, I think this is the fourth one I'm sharing here is, you know, I've, is, is perhaps this one about um, I've done it before. I've been a leader before. And what I mean by that is typically leaders who are coming in from a previous leadership position and coming into a new organization or a new team or with a new agenda will, by virtue of the fact that they've just had a role as a leader, be very occupied with you know, presenting themselves as the leader to this new organizational team or environment and be drawing heavily. You'll hear them quoting their CV when they come in. You know, I've just come from this job and I've just done this, had these tasks and I've just led these projects and had these results. And really the, the belief being that that's what's going to carry me into this team and that's what's important for you as my team to know about me. And where it becomes dysfunctional is that you're coming with your agenda again. It's back to this idea that you're in your head. I've done this before, so I don't need to know what's important to you. I don't need to be curious about what else I need to know about you that may, may, you know, may be new to me. I might have to adjust. I'm kind of coming in and I'm, I'm going to do what I've done before. I'm going to cut, paste, repeat. And that's really tricky, I think, for the receiving team because – they may absolutely be glad that you've been a leader before. They kind of feel secure that you, you know how to lead a team. But at the same time, they are who they are and they want to feel seen for them who they are. They want to feel valued and understood for what they bring. And that is different for every single team. So if you go in with the, you know, you're, you're another generic team and here I am and I can lead any team because I've done it before, can really make people feel invisible or that they're really just part of this kind of uh, huge 
real in the organization and that they as individuals don't matter, but they're just another mechanism for you to lead in this organization. It becomes very impersonal. So what I really say to people who have the, look, I've done this before, I'll be fine with this new team, is pay attention to the diversity and the differences because you're very focused on what's similar right now. And that's great, but you're going to miss a ton of information and opportunity if you don't pay attention to the diversity and differences that are in front of you that might make this experience much richer for both sides. Brilliant. And I've seen uh, new leaders onboarding and that's that's a huge uh, pitfall. So we've got about three minutes to close. Let's go to your favorite takeaway from the book and then also have you give our listeners your contact information and how to find your book. So my favorite takeaway perhaps is the fantasizing that I encourage leaders to do. And it's a a peculiar term, I know, but I do encourage leaders to fantasize. I studied the role of fantasy in in psychopaths uh, as part of my doctoral research and how fantasy is used as a way of preparing. In in their cases, they were preparing for, for criminal activity. I'm not encouraging that. But what I did learn in my research was that we visualize, that's what fantasy is, we visualize our intentions, our goals, our dreams, our desires. And in doing so, we rehearse it. And many of us do this for interviews, for example. You know, we'll kind of think about what I'm going into this room, who's going to be there. I picture what I'm going to wear and where I'm going to sit and what I'm going to say and how they're going to respond. So I encourage leaders to use the visual process of fantasizing when they're thinking about strategy or goals and really use that as a place to prepare and rehearse If you're going on stage and you have to give a speech, visualize it, walk through it in your mind's eye, think in detail where you're going to stand, where you're going to walk, how you're going to show up, where you will rest your gaze. And, you know, if you're going to talk to your team about something very important, rehearse it in in some kind of visual fantasy before you go in. That way you get to troubleshoot any issues that you think might crop up. You know, what happens if the technical equipment breaks down? What happens if somebody gets emotionally upset? How am I going to rehearse in my mind's eye how I'm going to handle some of those challenges and be best prepared? Thank you. Thank you, Nashadar. And we're we're at less than two minutes. So I need to have you share your contact information with our listeners. You know, the best place to get hold of me is on my Progressing Minds website. Progressing Minds is the business I run. I'm the CEO and founder of that company. Or you can, if you can remember my name and can spell it, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn and I'll get straight back to you. And remind us of the name of your book. It's The Leadership Pin Code, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships. And it's on Amazon. Thank you. So understanding the power of psychology can be beneficial to leaders to getting what is needed from every interaction while also maintaining positive win-win relationships. And we hope that that will help leaders build trust, easily navigate conflict, and create everyday value. I hope that you as our listeners heard something that you are able to put into practice uh, immediately, including the idea of fantasizing or visualizing uh, interactions so that you can do the advanced preparation and go into interactions feeling prepared. Thank you to our listeners for engaging in this conversation and for committing your time to being more effective leaders. We appreciate your feedback. Please reach out to us at either info at innovateleader.com, connect with me on LinkedIn or connect with us on Facebook, Innovating Leadership. We would love to hear your feedback. Comment on your favorite podcast platform and rate us and let us know what you would like to hear more or less of. Thank you again for joining us and we hope you return soon. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.